0: You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale continues with week two of our sermon series, Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. This morning, we are getting uh, into week two of our series, Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. And I want to ask you a question. Anybody remember the show that just ended about two years ago? The show called MythBusters. Anybody ever watched that show? Okay, a few of you. Um, so the basic premise of that show was real simple. They take a a, a fable, a myth, uh, something that we think is everybody everybody knows, and they'd actually test it to see if it was true. Um, one example I remember was that they uh, they wanted to see the myth is that Falling um, off a boat, hitting in like a, a jet ski or something, hitting the lake. is like hitting blacktop. And so that, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I've heard that before. If you're going real fast on a boat or something, you fell off and you hit hit the lake. It would be about the same as hitting blacktop. And so they took a test dummy and they they measured out how you know the force of the impact on, on water. And then they took a test dummy and they dropped it from the sky and the force of hitting blacktop and they proved that that is a myth. If you fall from the sky and you hit blacktop, it will hurt much worse than if you fall off a jet ski, according to them anyway. And so this morning, we're going to look at a couple of myths. And actually, we're going to look at one, and we're going to try to bust that myth this morning. But have, how many of you remember hearing uh, myths like this when you grew up? Uh, don't swallow that gum because it'll stick to the inside of your stomach. Anybody ever Okay, and it'll stay there for like 17 years too, something like that I think teachers just told kids that so they wouldn't chew gum in class Or if you swim right after you're eating, you'll get cramps and you'll drown, right? So like you had to wait 30 minutes Again, I think that's another one that adults perpetuated I think it was to keep kids out of the pool while they were swimming Um, At least that's what I would have done Don't Don't eat too much chocolate, you'll get pimples, right? You heard that one or uh, don't sit too close to the TV because you'll go... All right. Or what about this one? Don't crack your knuckles or you'll get arthritis, right? It's, it's a good thing that's a myth because if not, my hands will be in bad shape. Or last one, if you touch that frog, you'll get... All right, yep. So those are all myths, statements uh, that, that have been proven to not be true. And so this morning, we're gonna we're going to look at a myth because... Even though a myth is not true, people still buy into them. They still believe them and those beliefs and those behaviors, they're not new to our day and age. they're not new to our culture. They, people have been buying into myths for a long time, in fact, from the beginning of time. What did Satan tell Eve? If you If you eat that from that fruit or from that tree, you'll be, you'll be as powerful as God, right? You'll be like God, right? That was it was a half-truth. It wasn't all the way true. And so people have been believing myths since the beginning of time. And so today we're going to look at a guy in the Bible who bought into a myth. And it came at a great cost. And so we're going to look at a guy whose name is Solomon. Now we know him as Solomon, uh, yet we probably should have never known him as Solomon. There's a, a fun little fact, in the fine print of the, of the Old Testament, if you read over in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, that Solomon, while that was what his parents named him, was not what he was supposed to be called. In fact, let's just read it. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah." Now, here we've got uh, a, a clergy member making a visit to labor and delivery. And Nathan the prophet comes in and he sees this baby that God has blessed David and Bathsheba with. And David and, and Bathsheba are going to call him Solomon, which, which means peace. But Nathan the prophet says, no, 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 you, sh- you should name him Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. Wow, think about that. What a great name that would be would be for a little boy to have. Every time Bathsheba would call for him to, to come in for supper, you'd hear, Hey, Jedediah, you who are loved by the Lord, come on in here and get ready for supper. Or, Hey, Jedediah, you who are loved by the Lord, it's, it's time to get ready for bed. And, and Solomon is not a bad name. Peace is not a bad name. But it's not quite the same as being loved by the Lord, is it? The... It's one thing to say, hey, hey, Solomon, hey, hey, peace, come here. But hey, Jedediah, you who are loved by the Lord, come here. There's there's a there's something significant about that name. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. We do not read of of his God-given name, the name Jedediah sticking to him. And in fact, never again do we we read of him referred to as Jedidiah. Solomon is how he's known, and that's what his parents called him, a name that means peace. Now contrast that with Joseph and Mary and and how an angel appeared to them, a messenger of God appeared to them and said, hey, you're going to have a baby and you're going to give him the name Jesus for he will save the people from their sin. Jesus. Hey, you who are going to save the people from their sin, come on in here. It's time for supper. Hey, you who are going to save the people from their sin, come on in here. It's time for bed. What a name that is. And and think about what might have been had they not called him that. Had Mary and Joseph not been obedient to God and they named him something different. Even though David and Bathsheba did not do as they were told, God still loved Solomon or Jedidiah. And when he grew into a young man, he became a king, God appeared to him in a, in a dream and he was told to ask for whatever he wanted. God said, you can have anything in the world you want and I will give it to you. And Jedediah or Solomon, asked for wisdom. And God was so pleased with that request that he gave Jedediah the one that he loved. Not only did he give him wisdom, but he gave him wealth and honor as well. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to, to what we'll call his present life, into his reign as a king, as as King Jedidiah or King Solomon if you were going to describe his life you could describe it with this phrase let the good times roll in first Kings chapter 10 we read a, a passage that details the the wealth and 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 all the material possessions that he had accumulated as a king and so let's we're not going to read this all all but because it's a, a pretty lengthy passage of scripture but in first Kings chapter 10 verses 14 through 11 uh, 13 we we read a number of different things that Solomon had accumulated. So in verses 14 and 15, we see that he's given 666 talents in gold, which is actually 25 tons of gold. That's what the merchants that were, were doing business on the trade route that Solomon owned, that's what they were giving him, 25 tons of gold. That was his net pay. Pretty wealthy guy, isn't he? He had six in verses sixteen and seventeen we see that he has hundreds of shields that are made of gold. In verses 18 through 20, he's we're told that he has a throne made of gold and ivory. In verse 21, we're told that the goblets that he drank out of were made of gold. In and, and, and those days you would drink from silver goblets, but not, not Solomon. It was gold. In fact, he had so much gold that silver wasn't worth anything. Can you imagine that the value of silver being uh being so minimal because you have so much gold. And so even the cups that they drank from were gold. And then verses 26 and 29, it tells us that he had over a thousand chariots and, a, and thousands of Egyptian horses. The, these chariots had come from Egypt and the horses had come from Egypt. And then in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 11, we're told that Solomon had a thousand wives. And those wives influenced Solomon to fall away from God. You would think, The wisest man in the world would know better, right? And I'm not just talking about the wives. I mean, although, I mean, have you ever thought about this? He had a thousand wives. It means he had a thousand (laughs) mother-in-laws. And I didn't, you all laughed. I didn't, I just inferred something there. You you read into it what you need to. But after reading this description from, uh, about Solomon's life, we can characterize it with two simple words. Wealth and women. Solomon knew better, though. Solomon knew better than to live this way, because we're going to flip back into, into Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy is where we started last week, and remember, we're reading the farewell sermons that Moses gave to the Israelite people before, he's, before he dies. He's, he's preaching these sermons to a, a nation of young people, a nation of people who, who probably weren't even born when they came out of Egypt but they've wandered around in the desert, they were born in the desert, they've been in the desert, and now they're getting ready to go into a land of plenty. And so Moses is giving them these stern words to to live by as as preparation for his departure. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. He says, When you enter the the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it, and you've settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, Be sure to appoint over you a king, the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. And it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and to follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees, and to not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel." Did you catch all of what Moses tells the Israelite people? He told them, when you demand a king, because you're going to demand a king, although they were never intended to have a king. Did you notice that? He says, when you get into this land, you're going to demand a king. But God never intended for the Israelites to live like other countries. He intended to be their king. But He knew when they they got into this land that they would look around at all the other foreign countries, all the other nations, and they would say, hey, they all have kings, and they're all doing okay. We need to be like them. We need what they have, so let's get a king. And God knew that that's what they would ask for. And He said, so when you ask for a king, it needs to be a person who's one of you. It needs to be not a foreigner, not, not someone who's not an Israelite. It needs to be someone who, who has respect for God's law. And then, when you have this king, he's, here's what he needs to do. Every morning before he gets up out of bed, he needs to take this, what I'm telling you, he needs to write it down for himself, and he needs to read that every morning before he gets up out of bed. He needs to know what God's law is. Means, says about what it means to be a king. And the scroll would remind him, and this is what he was supposed to read every day, would remind him to not acquire many horses, particularly from Egypt. Why? Because God had delivered them from Egypt. But why did they need lots of chariots and lots of horses? Because God was all, always intended to be their defender. God always intended to be the one who would protect them. But, but accumulating such a large war chest basically was a sign of military strength. And God said, you don't need that. You just need to depend on me. But yet Solomon went and he got thousands of chariots and thousands of horses from where? From Egypt, the place where God specifically said, don't go back to. And then he said, uh, (laughs) God told him, don't accumulate large amounts of gold or silver. And yet they paid him 25 tons of gold. Now, I don't know what a lot is to you, but that seems like a lot to me. I don't have one ton of gold. I think one ton of gold would, would probably be a lot. But I don't ha- but, but then again, that's me. And then finally, strike three, he's told, don't have lots of wives. They'll lead you astray. And yet, all of these wives, they were, they were probably the daughters of, of foreign leaders and so he made he made agreements with all of these foreign leaders and what he did was he just he weakened the israelite army he weakened the israelite religion and he weakened the israelites the israelites as status of god's favorite people of god's favored people strike three right in baseball we'd say you're out Solomon simply chose to rebel against God. He knew what God's Word said, and yet he did it anyway. And how many times are we like that? We know exactly what God's Word says, and yet we choose to disobey. See, Solomon was not ignorant of God's commands, of God's words. He was disobedient. And, there's, and that's a big difference there. It's one thing to be ignorant of what God has said it's another thing to flat out reject and disobey what God has said. And that's exactly what we find here in Solomon. He has, he has intentionally disobeyed God. And yet, God kept his promises to Jedidiah. But Jedidiah, or Solomon, didn't keep his promises to God, let alone his name. So let's fast forward a few, few years into the future and we get to the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon wrote, writes this book of Ecclesiastes about his life in the, in the later years of his life. He writes it as a retrospect, and as he's looking back on his life from all of the pursuits that he has, he's had, he looks back and he's displeased with what he sees. In fact, you could, you could summarize Solomon's life and he does with five pursuits. And they stand out in the early pages of the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, it says he tried wisdom, but it wasn't enough. In chapter 2, he tried wine, but it didn't help. He tried finding fulfillment in his work, but that wasn't enough. He amassed massive wealth, but it was never enough. And then he had a harem of women, and he was still unsatisfied. Notice what Solomon says in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Notice what he admits here. Notice what Solomon's admitting here. He's saying whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And then he says this all is meaningless. He uses that word meaningless over 40 times in this short book of Ecclesiastes. He says everything is meaningless. The way that he has lived his life is meaningless. He says whoever loves money never has enough of it. And there it is, the myth. Right there in that statement, we find the myth. It's the myth of more. Because not only did Solomon identify the myth for us, he exemplified his life for us. He clearly shows us that the myth of more is just that, a myth. That the more we have, the happier we'll be. And you look around at our culture and our society, and we like that myth. We buy into that myth a lot. That the more we have, the happier we will be. And so we go to to great lengths to accumulate possessions and shiny trinkets for ourselves. Thinking that that's going to make us happy. And yet it cost us something. It cost us more than we'd ever want to pay him. For Jack Whitaker, it cost him a great deal. Jack Whitaker was a, a man living in Virginia and he won $315 million in the Virginia lottery. Now, he was already a millionaire before he won. The lottery. He had started a construction company when he was a young man and he'd been very successful and so he accumulated great wealth for himself. And now that he'd won the lottery, he had more, more money than he could ever dream of, more than he could ever imagine what to do with. And so he gave a 10% tithe to his church to which we would say thank you very much. He paid uh, a number of million of dollars to different charity, charitable organizations and, and different church organizations to again which we would say thank you very much. He started a foundation to help the poor in Virginia, which we would say very good. That's something that they probably need. But in the end, his 42-year marriage came to an end. Came to an end after he had over a half a million dollars stolen out of his car while, he, while it was parked at a strip club. He got arrested for drunk driving and he became an Alcoholic. He bought his 16-year-old granddaughter a fast car and gave her thousands of dollars at a time. And and people in their community would say that when she would drive down the road, you could literally see 10s and 20s and and even $100 bills flying out the window because she was just throwing them out. They had that much wealth. The greatest cost for Jack Whitaker, though, was when he got a call that authorities had found his granddaughter's body dead from a drug overdose. Buying into the myth of more comes at a great cost. And it cost Jack Whitaker a great deal. And like Solomon, every single one of us has a past, a present, and a future. And I'm not necessarily referring to a chronological past, uh, present, and future, but a financial one. Because Solomon lived large in the present, and so do we. When compared to the rest of the world, we live large in the, pre- in the present. We don't receive 25 tons of gold, or at least I don't. But, but we work, and we work, and we work, so that we can earn, and earn, and earn, so that we can spend, and spend, and spend, and spend. And if that's not enough, then we go to the banks, right? And we borrow money. And every banker will give you money because they know it's going to come at a high price, right? You're going to pay it back at a high price. So they'll give you money. And if that's not enough, then you can go, to, you can go get credit cards. And this I know for tr- is true. You, anybody in the world can get a credit card. Anybody in the world can get a credit card. And you, and you can max that one out and you can buy another one. And so every one of us has, we, we live large in the present. And when that happens, when we live large in the present, we chain ourselves to the past. If too much money is being spent on living large in the present, then we will most certainly create a past. And when we sign on the dotted line, we we draw a line in the sand from that day on. We obligate ourselves to to a creditor for a certain number of months on a certain number of uh, payments. And as we look back, uh, we've all done this before we, we might look back on, on when we had student loans or when we borrowed money to buy our first car or when we, we took out a mortgage to buy our house, we all became uh, slaves to the lender for a time being. Proverbs 22, 7 says just that. He says the borrower is a servant to the lender meaning that the creditor has control over us in some way, shape, or form. And so when we live large in the present, we, we are chaining ourselves to the past. And when we chain ourselves to the past, we have crippled our financial future. Our finances are split up into three categories here, past, present, and future. And so when we live large in the present, that we have financed from debt that, that originated in the past. We financially cripple our future. And far too many people live this way because they think it's normal. Because you look around at our society and our culture, and it's what everybody else is doing. They think it's normal. But since the 1980s, we've been a nation of people who practice conspicuous consumption. We spend money to buy stuff that we want for other people to notice. We have this idea that we've got to keep up with the Joneses, right? And if we don't have the money to buy all of this stuff, then we just borrow the money. And then we buy things with money that we do not have to buy things that we do not need to impress people that we do not know. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? For decades, we've tried to live large in the present, and the myth of more has has entrenched in our culture. We we have raised our children in an era that has known conspicuous consumption, and, and massive numbers of Americans know little to nothing about money and how to manage it. Young people in America have not learned it because their parents were the ones out out too busy spending it to teach them how to manage money. And moreover, young people never learned it in school because there were more important things in school to be taught. So how do we become myth busters? How do we bust this myth, the myth of more? Well, it's wrapped up in one single word. You want to bust the myth of more? Pay attention to this one word, STOP. That's it. Stop. Stop wanting. Stop wanting more. There comes a time in our lives when we have to, to put a stop to the getting. And that only happens when we can learn to stop wanting. The Apostle Paul said it this way in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11-13 through 13, and then verse 19. He says, For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or well hu- or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. All I can do, I can do all of this through Him who gives me strength. And then verse 19, it says, And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote these words from a prison cell. And when I, he was about 60 years old and... He's at that age where he probably should have been thinking about retirement, right? The thought of sleeping in from, from time to time or, or playing golf uh, on the weekends or, or getting up early and going down to McDonald's and drinking coffee with all the other retired men, right? That should have been at the forefront of Paul's mind. That should have been this time in his life. And yet we find Paul in prison, chained, hungry in the cold and hot in the winter or hot in the summer. And, and it would appear that Paul has very, very little And yet he says, I have more than enough. Not only had Paul learned to be content, but he learned the secret to being content. That being that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse we take out of context all the time. We throw it around uh, to give us uh, motivation to to accomplish things that we may never accomplish. But, But this verse is the secret to being content. Paul's talking about contentment here. I can can be content because it's Christ who gives me strength. And then he goes on and he says in verse 19, that God will provide all of my needs. And we think about that and we think, well, maybe God hasn't provided all of my needs. To which we would say, well, we need to learn the difference here between what a need is and what a want is. And God has never promised us to provide all our wants. He's promised to take care of all of our needs. We need food, we need water. It'd probably be nice to have a place to stay to get in and out of the cold from time to time. probably be nice to have a few clothes so that we don't have to run around naked in the city, right? That's what we need. And God has provi- promised to provide what we need. And yet here Paul, who's been incarcerated, he's, he's behind bars. but in another sense, he's free. Because he's free from the trappings of all the materialism, the cancer of greed. He's free from all that. He he has a simple life. Simplicity is freedom. Paul didn't live a life, uh, a simple life, because he needed to impress people. He didn't live a a simple life because he wanted people to, to know who he was. No, Paul lived a simple life because it was the easiest life. It was the life in which he could find the most fulfillment. It was the life in which God... Worked best through Him. Paul made a deliberate and intentional decision to live a simple life. I wonder if we can say the same thing. Can we say the same thing that we, we live a simple life? No, most of us, we can't say that. In fact, we, we go back and we, we have to do a gut check on what, it, what Paul says when he says our needs because we ha- we've created a financial past providing for our wants, Right? We we've got credit card debt that's out the out a uh, bit more than we would ever care to admit because we have we've pursued a life of materialism. On Tuesday, September the eighteenth, two thousand and fifteen, a British Airway jet it caught fire at the Las Vegas airport. It sent smoke you know billowing into the into the skyline of Las Vegas. There were you could see for for several miles the smoke coming and and pictures of this jet on fire began to make its way around the internet and it was it was a startling picture uh, you know anytime you see an airplane on fire it catches your attention right but some onlookers began to notice something else if we could show that picture this is a picture of the of the jet and you can see the smoke coming out of it and people making their way away from the plane and some onlookers noticed something about this picture and I wonder if you notice it What are the people carrying? They're carrying their carry-on baggage. Their airplane has caught on fire and they've been told, you have to get off of this plane because it's going to burn. And they got their carry-on baggages. And we think, well, what's the big deal about grabbing your carry-on bag? Well, here's the big deal. The FAA requires planes to be evacuated within 90 seconds. But as a Chicago air-based uh, based air traffic controller wrote, he said let's at, let's say that the average delay time per per bag is five seconds okay that's you got to reach you get up out of your seat, you get the overhead in the overhead bin, you get your bag out and then you make your way down a crowded aisle He said five seconds and that's being generous because it's probably going to take longer than that. He said if half of the people on board this plane did that, then their evacuation time would have been delayed over seven minutes a plane that is supposed to be evacuated in 90 seconds is now delayed over seven minutes because people care more about their stuff than they do their lives we have we have sold out this myth of more that so much to the point that we would we would be willing to burn in an airplane so as long as we got our stuff out and you know what the even sadder commentary is? Is that these people value, they're, they're so selfish that they, they didn't value the lives of the other people. It's one thing to not value your own life, but can you imagine being the last person in, in the back of the airplane trying to get out of the plane? And now you're trying to get out and you can't because everybody wants to get their carry on bags? We have to stop wanting. The myth of more is busted when we stop wanting. Secondly, we got to stop working. Now, some of you hear that and you say, oh, great, I don't have to go to work tomorrow. And that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. you got a job, 9 to 5, you need to go punch that clock tomorrow. But here's, here's what I am saying. we got to stop working more hours to earn more money to buy more stuff. Okay? Stop striving. We are driven to keep working and working and working because we need to buy more and more and more. Did you know in the United States, on average, 85% of men and 66% of women work more than 40 hours a week? We, we work more than 1,000 hours a year than the Japanese do, and on average, 250 hours more a week than the British do. And even in comparison to the work-addicted Germans, we work over more than 500 hours than they do. Working Americans work longer hours, take less vacation, and retire years later when compared to other nations. How are we like this? One reason is is that we measure success by what we have, and it's the never-ending cycle of working, earning, spending, buying, borrowing, and then when we don't have enough to pay for the money that we've borrowed, we got to work some more. So we work more to earn more, to spend more, to buy more, to borrow more, and it's a never-ending cycle. So we got to stop. Genesis two. God said it this way. He said, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on that day, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God rested. In simplest of terms, he stopped working. Some people read this and immediately they think that God was tired from all the work that he had done, from all the creating that he had done. But that's simply not true. God did not need a nap. So the psalmist writes that God does not slumber or sleep like we do. And rest it does not mean that, that God was rejuvenated in some way. It just means that he paused to enjoy the work of his hands, to look at back at what he had created and enjoy what he had created, to take satisfaction in what he had made. It would be like a gardener sitting outside their garden and just enjoying the hard work that they had put in and and just enjoying the beauty of the flowers that had bloomed in their garden. And that's what God is doing here. He's just sitting and enjoying the work of His hand. And God set apart a day of His his week for some R&R, some rest and reflection. And there was to be a day in the week to cease from work, to stop doing and to rest. And remember, located on the 9th Avenue in New York City, B&H Photo is the largest non-chain photo and video equipment store in the United States. And it's the second largest in the world. And the owners of the store, along with many of their, of their customers and their employees, are Hasidic Jews who dress just as their 18th century uh, native uh, ancestors did. And on any given day, eight to 9,000 people will pass through the front door uh, of their store. And they own a, a 200,000 square foot warehouse that houses all of their equipment, and all of their uh, merchandise in, in nearby Brooklyn. They are a very successful store. And yet 70% of their, their sales are done online. And you know what they do? B&H won't conduct business on the Sabbath day. Remember, they're Hasidic Jews. And so they close the doors at 1 p.m. on Friday, and they keep them closed all day Saturday, the biggest shopping day of the week. During the Sabbath, customers can peruse b website, but you can't even place an online order. You can go to their website, and you cannot place an online order uh, if it's on Saturday. Black Friday, you can forget about it. They're not open. One customer simply asked them, well, how can you afford to shut down on the busiest days of the week and year. And their director simply responded with this. We respond to a higher authority. The question is, do we? If we want to bust the myth of more, then we must respond to a higher authority whose name is God. And to sit still and look and think about all that God has given to us and all that God has blessed us with. If we stop working and we stop wanting, then I believe that we will start busting the myth that more is never enough. Because it's not. More is never enough. We can, we can accumulate more all we want, and we will always want more. Solomon exemplified this for us. And at the end of our life, do we want to sit back and look in retrospect like Solomon did and have to say it was meaningless? No. Now we don't want to do that. We want to live a life that's, that's, that's fulfilled with joy and contentment so that when we get to the end of our life, we can look back and we can say, yeah, it was worth it. But what's coming is even better. This morning, I just want to simply ask you, are you willing to stop so we might bust this myth, the myth of more? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And we are grateful for the the preservation of the scriptures so that we can look back and we can we can see the lives of of people who have stories to tell and they have examples for us to, to see that we can live by and also examples so that we can see what not to how not to live. And so Father, I pray that in in our hearts this morning we would begin to stop wanting that we would look around and we, as we look at our homes and we look at all the stuff that we have and we would just look at it and simply say that Jesus, you're all that I need. You're more than enough. Father, I pray that this morning that, that we would not have heard that having nice things or having, uh, or being wealthy is sinful because Lord, you have not said that. And so I pray that we've not heard that but, but that what we have heard is that all of those things will never bring the the joy and the satisfaction that that comes in knowing your son. And so, Father, this morning I pray that if someone needs to to know your son, to find that ultimate satisfaction in him, to stop stop wanting and to stop striving, to stop working so hard, and just to know that that you are all that we need. Father, I pray that they would step out and come. Father, we love you. And we thank you for, for your provisions. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.